And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Thursday, September 7th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, why certain nuclear power plant licenses are languishing at the NRC. Plus, these intelligence community trousers might be the best thing since Sanzibelt. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, like a whole lot of other DoD software programs, the Navy's Risk Management Information System used to use a waterfall development approach. That's a methodology that can take months or years to deliver a meaningful product. Now, though, RMI has embraced an agile approach, and it's delivering new releases every three weeks. Navy officials say that's largely because of a new pilot program that gives program managers much more funding flexibility. They don't need to worry about separate colors of money for development, procurement, and sustainment. Christine Lemaire is the program manager for Naval Applications and Business Services. She spoke with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu about what the Navy's learned from the pilot program known as Budget Activity 8. RMI is a agile-developed defense business system. It was uh, made in coordination with uh, Naval and Air Force safety stakeholders at the Naval Safety Command. The main goal of it is, is to improve the existing Naval Safety Command capabilities to deliver desktop and improved IT tools for mobile and ashore. You said and afloat. And afloat, okay. You, you said Agile developed, which kind of answers the question as to why this is a good candidate for BA8. But I'm curious, was that Agile methodology kind of in place before these pilot funding models became available, or what was the order there? So we, we actually coined uh, the phrase with this uh, program, uh, Agile. So it was in Waterfall, and then we moved it um, into Agile, and we are now delivering it in, a, in an Agile capacity. A lot of that was because of the B8 line. We are able to quickly pivot when needed. So let's talk about, uh, you know, that transition and, and, and what actually happened when you moved from Waterfall to Agile. Give us, give us some details there on, on what you were able to do once you started working with a single color of money. So, for example, in fiscal year 22, we, we were looking at a requirement split we were projected to be 70% sustainment and 30% development just based on, you know, what we had. However, because with the B8 line, you can quickly pivot, the changing customer priorities effectively reverse the funding percentages, resulting in 67% of our budget spent on development and 33% on sustainment requirements. B8 uh, eliminated the need to reprogram RMI's appropriation dollars to support our our stakeholders, you know, changing requirements. So it allowed us uh, to continue our agile development process in a very fast manner. That flip in more resources pointed toward development kind of makes sense logically, but could you unpack that a little bit for us and, and explain to our listeners, why having that, that agile capacity lets you push more resources and development and less in sustainment? So under standard colors of money, um, development on RMI would have had halted um, while we reprogrammed money, uh, which would have exposed our RMI to those developmental delays. We, we didn't have to reprogram, reallocate money, or, or wait until we had the right color. So when the user's 
requirements shifted, we were able to quickly pivot and, and bring the capabilities out faster. And that's, is that basically a permanent state of affairs now that you're working with one color of money? I mean, are you always just going to be disproportionately funding development and, and not sustainment? Well, I mean, that, that depends. We, we want to continue to develop and modernize. I mean, that, that's why we're doing all these different things, you know, software acquisition pathways, um, using V8, using all these different uh, new acquisition authorities so that we can get capabilities out there faster. Just some stats here on RMI, just by nature of having this V8 line, RMI delivered um, SPM training module on schedule. Um, SPM is the safety program management, and it provides those those processes uh, that are oriented to ensure the application is functionally planning and preparing to execute safety and occupational health activities. We deliver that on schedule. In 22, we were able to do the analysis and the the analysis and dissemination ahead of uh, schedule. And again, by nature of not having to wait until we had uh, an appropriate amount of RDT&E. And and A&D provides a tool set for incident reporting information, including cause and effects and predictive analysis for safety data. So for example, if we have a sailor on a stairwell and they fall, uh, that is then inputted into the system. Now, predictive analysis would say when we pull those reports, if 10 sailors or Marines fall in in that same stairwell, we may potentially have a a safety hazard um, in that particular stairwell on the ship. And in 23 this year, we've been able to do the SPM confined space module, and it was delivered also on schedule. We had not seen those types of successes in RMI prior to us having the B8 line. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the differences that you see in in this kind of funding flexibility and the traditional way of doing things, because, of course, you have a whole portfolio that you manage. What What's, you know, compare and contrast how quickly you're able to move here, um, how, how much less overhead you have, if that's a factor. I mean, compare a traditional program to, to this one. Okay, so traditionally, we are spending quite a bit of time doing several budget exhibits. Um, uh, And I do, I have 22 programs. This is the only one uh, currently using VA. Um, I I would love to have my, most of my agile programs on here. Uh, Oftentimes, uh, I'll I'll give a prime example. So back in June, uh, we did a real live user story on, on RMI. All the customers were in the room. We went through all their feedback. Uh, with the Naval Safety Center. And as part of that feedback, somewhere, I need you to pivot here. I need you to add a different dialogue box here. Um, And in my traditional um, programs, uh, that's a development um, initiative. So I would have to wait if I was out of RDT&E to 24. We didn't. We, We were able to get some of those feedbacks that the customers needed and wanted within the next sprint cycle. So it, it's it's immediate. They didn't have to wait six months and I plan out or 
what if I get cut a certain amount of, of money, which happens in several programs. Let's say from a comparison, I have 2 million in RDT&E and I have to use that for developmental activities. So if I get a cut of a million dollars, I may have to wait uh, sometimes, you know, two years before I can get that capability out. If I'm cut in a, in a B8 program, 5%, 10%, I can sometimes look for efficiencies in other areas. I don't have to wait for additional RDT&E. It's colorless. I can still move. Christine Lemaire is the program manager for Naval Applications and Business Services, speaking with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. Check out Jared's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, these intelligence community trousers might be the best thing since Sansabelt. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. If they say clothes make the person, can special clothes make the first responder? The Intelligence Advanced Research Project Activity, IARPA, wants to find out. It's launched a program to create trousers and other garments that look ordinary but can record audio, video, and location data. It's called Smart Electrically Powered and Networked Textile Systems. Yep, smarty pants. We wondered, too. Here in studio to explain, IARPA Program Manager Dawson Cagle. Mr. Cagle, good to have you in. Thanks so much for having me. And, well... What the heck are you trying to do here? <laughs> Why don't you tell well, us? other than make a memorable name, I, I we are actually trying to develop the next generation of the Internet of Things. We are moving electronics from your ordinary household items into your clothes, hopefully. That has been a challenge up until now because, frankly, clothes are a difficult environment for electronics. Uh, electronics don't want to stretch, bend. They certainly don't really like being washed. So we're trying to solve those problems. All right, because you think of electronics as wires interconnecting physical devices like chips, transistors, mm-hmm. resistors, and so forth. Those keep shrinking. You can get a million transistors in your fingernail, but it's still a stiff substrate ultimately. It's, it's still uh, a rigid what we've called a puck so the the problem is oftentimes how do you get from that rigid puck to the wire it's the interconnect and you know when you stretch to reach for something or you bend over to pick something up that's stress on your clothes and that interconnect can can bear the brunt of it so trying to do that while you're washing your clothes or while you're wearing them is a real challenge we're trying to figure out how this can work. And I mean, the, I think that the main application for it is probably for the medical sector, as well as for sports performance. Right. I was going to ask, what are the applications of this yeah. type of thing, especially in IARPA's context, national security, intelligence gathering? And I think your press release talked about first responders. Sure. Yes, indeed. Years back, I was a weapons inspector at the United Nations. When you are in these um, environments, usually a factory or uh, some kind of a military base, very often, if you're carrying around electronics, it's it can impede your movement 
in an area. You don't want to bang your head or touch a corner or, or uh, you know, run into something that while you're not paying attention. So it's super helpful to be able to have any kind of recording equipment that you would want physically part of your body instead of carrying it around so you don't have a free hand. That goes for law enforcement as well. And certainly in high, other high-stress environments, certainly our colleagues in the military also have that need. Now, when you think of electronics in the chain of events leading to, say, an audio or video recording, you can imagine a flexible substrate for the supporting electronics. They make rubber circuit boards now, and there are fabric bendable boards have been around for a while. But when you think of the input device, a microphone or a camera, a camera has to have a lens, and a lens is a hard, typically, thing that bends light made of glass. That seems hard to incorporate. Let me tell you, it is. We do have some really fascinating shots on goal for that, though. We have uh, some colleagues both at MIT and at the University of Michigan, which have already built and published their work on stretchable, bendable microphones in threads. That has been done. There are all kinds of applications for us, but I also imagine that it could be used for listening to your heartbeat. Yes, that is difficult. It turns out that just as you can imagine when fabric goes over the top of your microphone and you hear that brushing sound, it's equally difficult if it's actually physically built into your clothes. So there's extra work that you have to do to make it quiet. Yeah, there's a lot of signal processing and maybe some, let's say, it, artificial intelligence that has to be here. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. I, I would imagine that's the case. And we have a lot of experts working on audio processing in the effort. Likewise, one of the things that has been a surprise for me is if you have many small cameras, when, when I say small, I mean less than like the width of two pieces, two fishing lines. If you have many of them, just like the eyelets on a fly, on the on the eye of a fly, sure. you can actually have those simple cameras be threaded together into a computer and stitch together an image in with shocking resolution. Wow. We're speaking with Dawson Cagle. He's a program manager at IARPA, the Intelligence Advanced Research Projects Activity. How are you going about getting these samples, getting the – is this a grant program you're running? Tell us about the program aspects of Smarty Pants. (laughs) Smarty Pants is a research program out of my – out of IARPA. We put out a solicitation for researchers to to answer the our, our needs last year. We started in July of this year. We've hired five different groups. They have up to 10 team members inside those groups. And they're they're actually working to satisfy the numeric metrics that we have in the program. So, for example, for audio, it's a 60-minute conversation with at, at 60 decibels. So, they and then I guess within 1 meter distance. So, we we set the exact parameters that are needed in order to meet our metrics. The fun thing is that in addition to gathering that data, 
We also ask for the the same piece of electronics to meet certain fabric testing requirements. We want to make sure that everybody gets treated equally. So we have worked with our friends in the fabric and textile industry to actually build machines and to test on certain standards that, what is it, the American Association of Textile Colorists has for building fabrics. I never thought I would learn this stuff. I also didn't think I would learn so much about uh, about textile design and garment design and even fashion design. Sure. We actually have a wedding dress designer under contract. Wow. Yeah. Well, these things do evolve over time. I suppose. I mean, look how uncomfortable polyester was 40 years ago, and now it's almost preferred over some of the natural fabrics. I guess my question is, why fundamentally? I mean, if you want someone to be able to gather data, you can easily do that now with goggles, you know, and a Bluetooth connection to something that's really, for practical purposes, highly wearable, or, you know, people for looking at medical sensing there are Fitbit types of devices, wrist-worn, ring-worn, on your finger and whatever. What will this advance, do you think? Well, I think that uh, certainly what you say is very true. We can already record audio and video on our phones. And this is actually what a lot of the industry is thinking when they have looked at this in the past. That's actually the reason why it hasn't gone any further is because so far there's been no sort of killer app for how you how you actually receive this information or record information. Everybody can already do that on their phones. So what we're hoping is that there will be new applications found. Certainly, I mean, my my own dad is a type 1 diabetic. I was considering, you know, his compliance with checking his blood sugar. If he has to carry around his glucometer all the time, he's less likely to actually do the measurement. There are efforts at putting that into the puck of of a watch Mm -hmm. or of a phone. But if you were simply wearing the device, it was something that you put on every day, then patient compliance gets much, much better. So I'm hoping that that is actually one of the the big applications. From my conversations with folks in the medical community, they certainly sound very interested. But with respect to recording externally, say, like the shirt itself is a sensor that can hear and see, then storage would also be incorporated. Storage would be incorporated, yes. What about the privacy and just creepiness aspect? (laughs) Your shirt is recording me or your hat. You're not doing hats. You're doing... No hats, no hats. It's it's something that is worn organically from head to toe, neck to toe. We generally say something that's touching the skin. So So if someone takes off their shoe while they're talking to you, you might get the idea. (laughs) That's a smart sock. Yes, smart socks. That's in play. I would say, you know, we we at IARPA pay a great deal of attention to civil liberties, personal privacy, and we've baked that into the program. We're not actually doing any testing on people. And uh, our effort is really not so much what we're recording as how. So the how part of the question is the part that hasn't been answered. I actually think that the sensor is the least of my worries. The biggest part of my worries are actually the interconnects, the battery. Mm-hmm. How do you make a washy, stretchy battery? And That's where the buttons come in. <laughs> right, and the buttons. So 
interestingly, the buttons and the ha- – that's called haptics – is sure. is actually one of the more interesting parts. If you look at how weave is done on a garment, there's two directions that the threads go. Right. One is called the warp. That's the twisty part. And the other is called the weft. Right. And the warp and weft. That's how a loom works. That's exactly right. There are researchers in our teams that have worked to build different kinds of wires that can be put in the warp and the weft that you press together to form a switch. So you could actually have a fabric switch. So, I mean, this, this, the innovation is amazing watching how the different parts that you would assume go into a rigid puck and how you put that into fabric. And what is your timeline on getting, say, a prototype? Well, I get prototypes in three stages on the program. The first one is in just a year and a half. The teams need to put all of the pieces together and to put them on some kind of a flexible swatch a mm-hmm. fabric or something similar. And then one year later, I get my first garments. And then third is a garment that you can actually wear around and wash. Oh. All of that is like three and a half years. One of these days we'll say, you want to have lunch? Well, I'll have my shirt call your socks and we can get together and <laughs> decide when we get together. I love that. Dawson Cagle is a program manager at IARPA, the Intelligence Advanced Projects Research Activity. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Put the Federal Drive in your smarty pants pockets. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, this new rule gives contractors a way to rate the government. But first, why certain nuclear power plant licenses are languishing at the NRC. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Like it or not, windmills and solar panels won't be sufficient to power the U.S. economy and way of life. Nuclear power will be part of the mix. The Government Accountability Office has found licensing of advanced reactors of widely varying sizes are stuck at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. For why that's the case, we turn to the GAO's Director of Natural Resources and Environment Issues, Frank Rusco. Frank, good to have you back. Thanks very much. Great to be here. And let's begin with a little bit of a definition here. You were looking at licensing of advanced reactors. I guess there's a new technology generation of reactors that have been developed And so what kinds of reactors and licensing were you looking at here? Yes, a lot of the new reactor designs, they differ either in size. There are a lot of small reactors. There are a couple other differences. They tend to focus on more passive safety technologies so that they're sort of inherently safer. They won't melt down in no matter what kind of scenarios. And then there are also different fuels that can be used and different cooling systems. So they're just new technologies. But I would say that most of the new designs are going to be smaller than the big, huge reactors we've seen in the past. I mean, that's not the point of our conversation, but that seems to be one of the big untold stories of advances in this area of technology. It's not as if people are looking to license another new fleet of Fukushima's or Three Mile Islands here. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely, there's going to be improvements in in sort of their inherent safety. And also, just the different sizes would enable them to be slotted into the existing electric grid in different ways. And in some cases, be more flexible, make the grid more flexible. Right. Some of these can fit in the space allotted by a trailer 
behind a truck, for example. They're that small that could maybe power a town or a small region or something. Right. Yeah. There are those micro reactors like that. And then there are others that are sort of, you know, more the size of a large house or something like that. And they, of course, can power larger amounts of area. All right. And in looking at the NRC, then what is the backlog or what is the caseload that they're getting now to approve, I guess it's licenses to install and operate these devices? Yeah, well, they already have a handful in process of of licensing and have gotten through a couple, uh, one that was uh, denied a license, but they're expecting a lot more to come. There's been a huge amount of private sector investment and federal money has gone into this. And so they're expecting going forward a larger number of these. And one of the biggest problems that NRC has had is keeping staff that have the right skills to evaluate these things on staff at the right place and at the in the right number so it's to sort of match the number of applications they have so that's the biggest sticking point and just before we get to that particular issue what types of outfits are seeking approval to operate these are they the utilities that are looking to expand their sources or is it completely new entities in the power generation field It's mostly the latter. So it's companies that have staked their claims on these new technologies, and they are, in some cases, negotiating deals with utilities. If they can build it, they'll buy the power, that sort of thing. But there's a lot of startups in this world. And so the implication for the NRC is that because they, say, use fuels that are not traditional or cooling and safety mechanisms and form factors that just haven't been seen until this era relative to old nuclear-style reactors, that takes a different skill set or different knowledge set to be able to evaluate? Yes. So if you have somebody with the background and can understand the science behind these, the biggest problem, I think, is keeping those people you know, in federal employment at a time when the industry is booming and trying to hire folks with those kinds of skills. We're speaking with Frank Rusco, Director of Natural Resources and Environment Issues at the Government Accountability Office. In other words, the NRC is competing on the regulatory and licensing side with the industry that's developing and deploying. Absolutely. And that's not an uncommon thing in government, but there are steps that NRC should be taking to make sure that they can keep the right number of people in the right places. Yeah, so is the sense of this particular report, which was you know specifically requested by Congress, as most of them are, that this is a potential holdup for the industry and for the deployment of these devices, or is there a logjam right now? I think that it's more that there's a coming logjam, and NRC has embarked on issuing new rules and guidelines for licensing these advanced reactors. But that's not going to be done anytime soon. And so currently they're using the old review process. And so now they have to kind of fit the new technologies into that old process. And, you know, NRC has not done the best job in communicating exactly how they want the companies to do that. And that's another part of the problem. And does the NRC acknowledge this shortcoming or these the set of shortcomings? They understand that they have human capital challenges for sure, and they essentially agreed with our recommendations that they take some further steps to work on that and also just communicate a little bit better. So I think they understand it, but they're trying to adapt in real time as these things come in, and you know that's inherently a thorny problem for an agency. 
And as one of the potential pitfalls for their approval process is the inevitable lawsuits. I mean, imagine telling someone, see that small building over there that's built at the edge of the farm next to your neighborhood? That's going to be a nuclear reactor. One can only imagine the array of lawsuits that would line up for a thing like this. So in some ways, their approvals have to be pretty bulletproof. Yeah, absolutely. NRC's approvals tend to be very, very bulletproof. You know, they kind of require a lot of what you might call over-engineering to make sure that, you know, the safety measures that are in place are actually going to work even in very different circumstances than you might anticipate. So I would say that their review process is very rigorous. And the challenge is to make it rigorous so that it can stand up to challenges, but at the same time, not make it so onerous that nobody can get through the process. Right. So again, it's a human capital problem in the sense that everybody understands what the technological requirements are here and the knowledge requirements and the regulatory requirements. They just need people to carry it out. Exactly. And, you know, another issue is there's going to be turnover. So whenever something like this happens, you know, in in an industry that's expanding, you'll see experts getting pulled from all over the place to go work in an industry. And then, of course, that will affect the regulators. But it's really important to have a system in place that when you lose somebody, you transfer the knowledge that they had ahead of losing them, that you have a process where you're always training new people in anticipation that you might be losing some of your best talent. So that's another thing they need to work on. Yeah. So let's uh, summarize the recommendations you had to the NRC and did they accept those? Yeah. Yeah. So I would say that there's four recommendations, but we can put them in two buckets. And the first one is, is human capital. You know, NRC knows that they have a human capital problem. They have challenges getting the right people in the right places at the right time. And they have taken some steps to try to pay more for people when they, when they need to, things like that. But what they haven't done is try to evaluate the steps they're taking in order to facilitate hiring to know whether they're working. So they need to, to look at baselines and say, okay, here's what's happening. We're missing out on these people. You need to talk to them. You need to interview them and say, what would have changed your mind? You need to figure these things out. And so we're recommending that they build in some of these measures of success so that they can change the, uh, the incentives over time and try to be better at hiring. I mean, there's a lot at stake here. If you look at, say, 25 to 50 years ago, the licensing process for nuclear power plants, as we traditionally understood them, basically resulted in the bankruptcy of most of the utilities trying to install them because they never could get it done and they would have billions sunk into them but nothing to show for it. This is a whole new approach to that industry, and it sounds like something the nation needs to nurture. I mean, by policy, they're nurturing it. And they have to fulfill that policy because we need the electricity. Yes, absolutely. You know, that, you know, that's that is the big challenge. You know, we want these things to be very safe. But at the same time, if you can't build them, they're, you know, or or in a timely fashion, you you sort of, you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Sure. The old timers remember the Lilco story and nobody wants to see that come back. Frank Rusco is director of natural resources and environment issues at the Government Accountability Office. As always, thanks so much. My pleasure. Thank you very much. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Plug into the Federal Drive by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, this new rule gives contractors a way to rate the government. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.
Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Federal contractors get plenty of feedback from the government, but outside of protests, the notion of 360-degree evaluation doesn't exactly operate. Until now, maybe. Thanks to a new rule from the Federal Acquisition Regulation Council, the FAR Council, called Acquisition 360 to encourage vendor feedback. Here with what this is all about, Center Law and Consulting Partner Alan Chavotkin. And Alan, good to have you back. Tom, always a pleasure to be with you. And this rule is final. It takes place later this month. And what does it actually do here? Well, for the first time in a long time, it's been five years in gestation, uh, the FAR Council now wants to encourage federal agencies to solicit vendor feedback at the conclusion of a procurement to assess how well the agency has performed and to solicit input from the vendor community, both those who participated as well as ideally those who did not participate as to why, how can they improve the process? Again, so not that the end result is a perfect process, but that the agency has an an opportunity to improve the results of the procurement. What possible forms could that take? Well, most of these are in the form of a open-ended survey and the FAR Council is going to work on a set of core survey questions for vendors. They already solicit some open form questions for contracting officers to comment on the program office and for the program office to comment on the contracting office. This is really the outreach to the vendor community for comments about the entire process. Because if a vendor is really unhappy with the process, there can be a protest at the point that the solicitation is offered, and then there can be another protest after the contract is awarded, and that's feedback. But if everything goes protest-free, what could a vendor typically or potentially comment on that the agency does? I mean, what about a procurement could they comment on? Well, they might say, for example, that the agency was too slow in responding to solicitations or came too late in responding to uh, vendor questions. So that made an impact on the ability of a company to put a team together or to draft their solution. Uh, They might comment on the number of changes that went through or a shift in the personnel. Again, this is not to evaluate rate an agency or a contracting officer. It's not a scorecard about them. It's really about the process. But there are innumerable uh, issues that might affect how a vendor views the process that don't go to the heart of the solicitation and evaluation. And what about the requirements themselves? Often, you know, I think vendors, contractors may have the sense that they know what the government actually needs but they also know what the government put in its requirements. And as we all know, there's a long history there of variance. Could that be something that could be surveyed? Well, it could be. There's a a lot of open-ended questions where that information could come in. This is not a substitute or replacement for anything else. So in the situation you mentioned, if I asked, I'd always encourage companies to get in early on their communication and not wait for this post hoc evaluation. But here again, if that's the only chance a vendor has, they might choose to not respond in that way during the procurement, but want to let the agencies know why they didn't pursue it because they weren't satisfied with the requirements or didn't think they were adequately described. 
We're speaking with Alan Chavotkin. He's a partner with Center Law and Consulting and long-term observer of all things federal procurement. What about debriefings? How do these differ from debriefings? And is there an opportunity in a debriefing to get some of this information to the government? Well, there are debriefings that typically the government talking to the vendor about why they did not win a procurement. Occasionally, a vendor, I encourage vendors who win procurements to seek a debriefing to always, you want to understand the agency's decision-making. This is not the best time for making those comments because the focus here is the agency sharing with the vendor uh, their evaluation, their conclusions about the value and quality of the uh, vendor's procurement uh, solution. But every opportunity to engage with the government, in my view, is an opportunity to inform them about how the process has worked and what the opportunities the vendor has had to fully and fairly participate in them. And to whom would these reverse debriefings, I guess you might call them, apply? That is, the contracting officer is one party to all of this, but there's a source selection team. There is a requirement setting team, which could be the program or the technology office. Would all of those people be able to see these results? Yes. And the goal here under the rule is to anonymize the response so as to encourage feedback unless the submitter chooses to be identified. But yes, all of those parties, the contracting officer, the uh, requirements team, the program office, all part of the draft questions from the earlier proposed rule remains to be seen there. Our council still has to write the final questions based on this final rule, and that should come in the next 30 to 60 days. Yes, all of those, uh, every party to the acquisition on the government side should be subject to this set of comments. Right. So I guess if there's some really strong feedback or there are some flaws that are of a serious nature that might have been indicated by the survey that nevertheless didn't derail the procurement, I mean, you can learn a thing or two from that type of feedback. Is your sense the government will take this in stride and, well, okay, we're going to fire contracting officer XYZ because of this. That's not what anyone wants to happen. No, and that, again, the goal is not, uh, I mean, if there's those kinds of issues, I wouldn't wait for this kind of feedback, uh, this 360 review, the vendor comments uh, to be the source of that. Those ought to be identified and escalated up the contracting chain if you believe a contracting officer acted uh, improperly or um, violated some other of the procurement rules or uh, some other failure in the acquisition system. This is really designed to get at a systemic set of issues, even though it's going to come one solicitation, one procurement at a time. Right. Will these be accumulated? And will it be possible, do you think, for either industry or the government to aggregate findings over time, learn about trends, and really get at systemic issues with how a particular agency goes about procurement and acquisition? I would would expect that would be the ideal outcome. They promised to make the results available in the aggregate, uh, and that's the goal, to improve procurement outcomes via an improved procurement process. So no FOIA necessary? No FOIA necessary. No. Alan Chavotkin is a partner with Center Law and Consulting. As always, thanks so much. My pleasure, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his blog and to that new rule at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
federal agencies and contractors are officially barred from asking about a job applicant's criminal history, at least until after they make a conditional job offer. New final regulations from the Office of Personnel Management aim to make it easier for formerly incarcerated individuals to get government jobs. It all comes from a bill passed in 2019, the Fair Chance Act. Here with details, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. And Drew, we know what the law requires, so what is the end goal of these final OPM regulations? The end goal is to expand opportunities for incarcerated or formerly incarcerated individuals who are applying for federal jobs advocates of the Fair Chance Act, where these regulations came from, and other ban-the-box type opportunities say that asking about criminal history during the hiring process actually discriminates against candidates who would otherwise be qualified for a position. So these applicants, if they choose to, they could offer or share that information with a hiring manager, but hiring managers or other people who are interviewing these candidates won't be able to ask about criminal history before making a conditional job offer. All right. And agencies in some cases have this practice in place. You know, the uh, don't ask box or whatever they call it or chuck the box has been going on now for a few years. So what are some of the changes now that OPM is promulgating? Right. So we had the ban the box policy from 2016 from OPM. But more recently, we've seen some changes from for example, from the 2021 executive order on diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility from President Biden, that initially gave OPM these new authorities to kind of expand federal hiring opportunities for formerly incarcerated people. With these new final regulations, we're seeing now a new mechanism for applicants to report violations of the Fair Chance Act. So if they're in the hiring process, they are being interviewed and they get asked something before getting a job offer, they can now report that to OPM, and OPM would have to determine whether or not it is actually a violation. Depending on the severity of the violation, you're also going to see some adverse actions there to federal employees who are involved in the hiring process. So that can be anything from just a written warning to a suspension to even civil penalties in some more severe cases. And OPM detailed how to appeal those allegations of a violation as well. But generally, yes, you have seen agencies already working on this. So, for example, the Justice Department and the Education Department have both onboarded formerly incarcerated employees as part of a Second Chance Fellows program. Each agency has their own. And that's just another way that agencies are trying to bring in more formerly incarcerated individuals into the federal government and generally expand those opportunities as well. Are there any exceptions to these regulations? For example, could a former axe killer become a TSA officer? Or could a former multi-million dollar embezzler work in the CFO office of an agency? Great question. Yes, there are exceptions to these final regulations. For example, if there's a position that involves interactions with minors, access to sensitive information, managing financial transactions, things of that nature, then in those cases for those positions, agencies could ask about criminal history just because that would be part of, you know, for example, a background checked later down the road. Also, if, you know, the applicant would have as part of the job access to classified information or national security related duties, then those instances, you would be able to ask about criminal history because, of course, that 
that does directly uh, correlate there. And we should point out that this means you don't have to hire someone. You could make a conditional offer, but after the conditional offer, you could check criminal background, right? Still. Right. You can. And that's interestingly, that's something that OPM doesn't right now have a lot of data on the impact of if you have someone in the in the application process who's later asked about criminal history, they don't have a lot of numbers on whether that person ha- then had the offer rescinded if they were a formerly incarcerated individual or ended up getting that job. So that was something that OPM detailed as well in the final regulations here that they're going to start looking at more data on, okay, what? how many applicants do are in formerly incarcerated individuals, you know, how many of them actually do get job offers and actually take or start those jobs rather than the agency then going back and saying, okay, you know, now that we asked, we're actually going to pull back on on our offer here. Right. So the agency still has final discretion. I guess really the purpose of this, fair to say, would be to not discriminate against someone because of having been incarcerated, but then the nature of the incarceration and the nature of the job might still mitigate letting that person in. Exactly. So, you know, there is going to be, I think, some questions down the road once you get past that conditional offer of whether or not the applicant would actually make sense for that position. But generally, at least in the in the majority of the hiring process in the earlier stages, they're saying this is a better way to you know, ensure that you're not discriminating against people just because they were formerly in prison. A lot of people, it does happen to a lot of people and they are denied jobs because of those criminal records. So this is a way that the government, similar to actually 28 states have similar laws already in place that now the government is trying to kind of expand that as well, and expand OP- those opportunities as well. And OPM will be collecting data, I imagine, right? Right. There is a bit limited data here on how that actually looks. But in the proposed regulations from OPM last year, they were asking stakeholders for, you know, what is the data collection that we should be looking at here? So they're going to start collecting more data on, for example, how many applicants receive conditional offers, how many of those applicants have conviction records, and then whether or not that job offer was rescinded later down the road. Also, the types of convictions where the offers were rescinded, and then, of course, demographic information for all of those candidates kind of across the board there. So OPM now is looking at developing a data collection strategy and plan for these regulations moving forward. And right. So the implementation then will consist of what from OPM's standpoint? It sounds like something agencies have to do. OPM also detailed, you know, the breakdown of, you know, what are agency, individual agencies' responsibilities here and OPM's responsibilities, especially for reporting violations and handling appeals. So, for instance, agencies will have to intake those allegations from candidates, but then OPM would have to actually adjudicate each claim. And also going forward, OPM is going to work with the chief diversity officers, executive council, as well as the chief human capital officers or Chico Council to work with agencies on their specific plans here. Um, and then also developing metrics to try to increase federal employment opportunities for these workers or potential applicants who do have criminal records but want to work for the federal government. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out her complete story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin. 